Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. In the first of a two-part episode, Dr. Ronald Clark, renowned criminologist, recipient of the Stockholm Prize of Criminology, professor, and much more, discusses the evolution of situational crime prevention, his research background, the British government's Criminology Research Department Home Office, the genesis and techniques for opportunity theory, and opportunity reduction techniques. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events, and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. So welcome everybody to uh, another episode of Crime Science, the podcast, um, coming to you from Gainesville, Florida, from the University of Florida campus. Uh, an LPRC production. Uh, Today, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce um, a a colleague, a mentor, um, and really one of the guiding lights in the area of criminology, but in particular, um, the the part of criminology we're talking about is environmental criminology and the role that opportunity plays in crime. And so we're not going to talk about criminality, um, but about crime and what we might do about that. And so I thought, if I might, I'll introduce uh, Dr. Ron Clark. Um, And, uh, you know, Ron, if you could maybe start off, and I know you've gone through this before, but maybe a little bit about your background. Um, I think I could recite it by heart. Uh, At least I think I can, but but better coming from you, Ron. Oh, okay, Uh, Reed. I I have a different kind of background from most criminologists. Well, criminologists are, are a very mixed bunch, but um, I, uh, I never received any training in criminology. Um, uh, when I was graduating there in England, there weren't any real criminology degrees offered, uh, but I trained as a, clinic, as a clinical psychologist. Um, and uh, I quickly found out during that training that I wasn't terribly interested in talking to patients. Um, Even though I was doing a a more useful kind of clinical psychology, I was doing behavior therapy where I trained with Hans Eysenck at the Maudsley Hospital. Um, But even so, I found dealing with patients comparatively boring than uh, compared with doing a bit of research, which I had to do in my training. So when I graduated, I, I really wanted to get a research job and uh, I was lucky enough to end up with one that was, um, you know, important in my uh, life, actually. So tell us if you would, Ron, uh, tell us if you would, Ron, a little bit about um, your role at the uh, home office in the UK, what the home office is, the equivalent in the United States, for example, uh, but what you did and how you all started to look at and think about crime in the real world and, and what we might do about it. Okay. Um, actually, I'd like to just say a little bit about the work I did before I got to the Home Office in England. 
Um, I, as I said, during my training as a clinical psychologist, I, I discovered I was much more interested in research, and I, I ended up getting a job in a in a training school for for boys. Um, and this was actually an extremely interesting job for me, and probably the best job I've ever had, because um, I was left almost entirely to my own devices. The only thing that I was expected to do as a research worker in these schools was to do research that was useful. That was what I was asked to do. So I always had to justify what I was doing in terms of how useful it was. And that was very practical. You know, um, I, I, I lived, uh, my office was on, in the training school and I often shared lunch or uh, afternoon tea, being England, we had an afternoon tea break with the, with, the, with the faculty members who were dealing with the boys on a routine basis. And they always asked me, so how are you going to help me with your research? How is your research going to help me? What use is it going to be? And um, I found that irritating at the time, as I think they were goading me somewhat. They, they were sort of implying that I had a pretty cushy existence. Um, but it really made me think very hard about uh, the purpose of research. And uh, I, I strongly believe and still then, or came to believe and I still do, that um, research is all very well, but it's only really good if it's in helping to improve things for people, making life better, and uh, it, it, whatever the particular way it is. So I acquired a strong belief in doing useful research. Um, and whenever I've started off on a research project, I've always been thinking about how could this be useful? How could it help uh, improve matters for, uh, well, it depends, but could improve matters for those working in the field or for those who are subject to their administrations uh, or whatever. So I, I, I'm very, always been very interested in trying to do useful research. I was left to, to, to choose what I wanted to work on, but in the end, it was decided that I would do work on absconding from the training schools. Now, absconding simply means running away from them, escaping from them. And it was very easy to do this in many schools um, because uh, the schools, by the way they were set up was supposed to be open institutions so they were the doors were not locked <coughs> even at night they were not locked so boys in the training schools could run away and uh, many of them did many of them absconded and um, uh, i was trying to do research that would uh, help help to find training regimes that were more conducive to the boys and would uh, be directed to preventing them from absconding. That's what I was trying to do. And um, what I found, to cut a very long story short, and which, which is 
lessons stayed with me all my life was that, all my professional life, I should say, was that um, there was very little difference between the boys who ran away and those who didn't. I, I spent three years trying to find things that differed, that differed those two groups and using all kinds of tests and information about their backgrounds and schooling and so on and so forth. And it was extremely uh, detailed work and I was greatly helped by the fact that I was in a classifying school which um, meant that uh, boys were given a very uh, rigorous set of tests and uh, uh, interviews when they entered the school and I was able to analyze those. Uh, and sometimes the psychologists and social workers uh, included stuff that I particularly wanted to hear about. So they, they gave tests that they hadn't given before that I thought might predict absconding. And they um, asked questions in their interviews that they hadn't thought of before that I thought was relevant to absconding. Anyway, a long story short, very few differences between those boys that ran away and those that didn't, very few. Um, they were a little, uh, well, the most significant thing was that whether they'd had a history of running away from other institutions which they'd been in before the training schools, such as children's homes or things like that. Um, but the, what I did discover while I was doing this, that there was huge differences between the schools in the numbers of boys that ran away even though it was pretty clear that they had received the same kinds of boys. There wasn't much choice uh, of who they took. Um, and these differences were, I, I worked out, were due, mostly due to opportunity variables and pressures within the uh, regimes of the institutions. So it was the present circumstances and the opportunities they had to run away that governed whether these, whether particular schools had high or low absconding rates. Um, so what did I learn? I learned that um, it didn't matter too much about the differences, the individual differences between boys. You could pretty much ignore those the things that, the, why they ran away were fairly simple reasons, like they were missing home or they'd been treated badly by the staff or they'd been bullied by other boys or something like that. Fairly commonplace um, motivations, motives I would call them actually, rather than motivations. And um, what mattered a great deal was the, uh, uh, the way the schools were run and what went on in them. So that led me on to uh, doing work on uh, um, try, trying to understand the present circumstances that influence people's uh, misbehavior or criminality or crime uh, and uh, thinking about ways to um, reduce or modify those uh, pressures and circumstances. Um, or reduce the opportunities. So my work 
subsequently was very heavily influenced by what I did um, in those approved schools and what I learned about absconding. So, um, you then asked me about the Home Office. So I think on the Home Office, uh, yes, let's go in because I've asked, I got the question on the record, Ron. Um, you know, how did, what were you all focusing on and, and how did, you know, I, your early lessons learned about opportunity seeming the most critical factor uh, or a very critical yeah. factor and then how you adopted and started to leverage that? Yes, well, <clears throat> when I finished my work at the, at the training schools, for which I actually was able to submit that work for a PhD, uh, which was very nice because I hadn't had to pay any fees. All I did was had to uh, write it up and submit it for a London University PhD. Um, the only problem was I was examined by people that I'd never met. I didn't know who they would be. So that was a little bit uh, worrying. But never mind, I got my PhD and I uh, decided to... Uh, uh, get an, another job um, and um, I had a choice between a, a university academic job and a job in the home office. The home office is the um, is sort of the equivalent in this country of the National Institute of Justice but the home office research and planning unit which is what I joined uh, does far more work, original research of its own kind of its own rather than simply funding uh, research of others, which is what the NIJ does, uh, mostly anyway. Um, so um, I joined the Home Office and worked there for a while and eventually climbed up the ranks a little bit. Um, and I was asked at one point to uh, review um, what worked in reducing crime. I mean, this is a long time ago before the what works idea got uh, a lot of currency as it has now. And so I set about reviewing the literature on what worked. And most of it didn't work very well. Um, most of the programs seemed to be, uh, this was a, in an age where we were very, everyone was very focused on rehabilitation. Much of the rehabilitation work that was going on, which was fairly well evaluated at the time, with randomized controlled trials and so on, showed that rehabilitation wasn't doing very much good for anyone. Um, and uh, I also looked at a lot of research on policing and the courts um, and uh, social work and so on and so forth. And in the end, <clears throat> I came up with the, with the idea, drawing on my uh, work from uh, the training school, that really we had neglected the role of opportunity in crime. Uh, in crime prevention, it had been neglected. Um, Mostly people thought at the time that opportunity was not an important part of crime because uh, the idea was that if people had the motivation to want to commit crime, uh, 
opportunity didn't really matter. Um, that what mattered was what these people were like uh, and what they uh, what they wished to do. Uh, and their motivation was what mattered. So um, I then developed a, uh, I then began to develop what came to be called situational crime prevention, which is all about changing the opportunity structure for highly specific forms of crime. Um, that's what, uh, that's basically what uh, situational crime prevention is about. Excellent. So, because my next question was around uh, the, you know, the genesis of opportunity theory. What, who else started to think about opportunity in a, in a more serious way at that time, Ron? I mean, who were some collaborators uh, as this was evolving? Yes. Okay. Well, there, there was some... Um, I was quite heavily influenced in the early days by uh, Oscar Newman and uh, the architect who, uh, you know, launched the idea of defense of space. That idea was flawed in many ways, but it basically was uh, an opportunity-reducing approach to crime. Um, so he was important. There was one or two others, but... Um, the most important uh, group that I got to uh, got to interact with were, were some American and Canadian um, researchers, uh, such as um, the Brantinghams, who were beginning to uh, develop what they called uh, environmental criminology, and uh, Marcus Felsen, who was uh, developing routine activity at that time, routine activity theory. So um, I found that they had very similar ideas to mine, of course, different in the precise details, but, but basically they were also interested in the role of opportunity uh, and the role of criminal decision-making, which, uh, which is what was, uh, I, I, was, uh, I, I was focusing on. I got to meet... Uh, the Brantinghams and Felsen really a long time ago, just while they were developing their ideas, really. Um, in, the, in the 1970s, I suppose it was. Um, and we've, we've stayed in touch ever since. Uh, we do different sorts of things. You know, we're not quite the same. Um, I think I'm more, more focused on prevention uh, than, than either of uh, Felsen or, um, or the Brantinghams, that they're more interested in looking at the role of, uh, uh, of how opportunity uh, operates. Uh, I, I'm more interested in finding ways to reduce opportunities, which makes for a different kind of approach. But, you know, they, all, all these approaches are rather similar. And, all nowadays come under the, uh, the the broad headings of environmental criminology or even crime science. Those two labels uh, encompass all these sorts of ideas. And so maybe if you could give your latest on rational choice perspective, and, and uh, you, 
you all develop, you, Cornish, and others, and we had a small role with benefit denial, but the, but the, the techniques um, that one might use, uh, as you mentioned, for very specific types of crime and, and, and even in specific places, uh, but what were those techniques, the, particularly the five techniques, and how did that start to unfold, and, and what did that look like? Yes, quite early on, um, I and a few other people began to think about, about classifying um, techniques of opportunity reduction. Um, and we began with uh, a fairly small number of techniques, but now those techniques have, have grown to about 20, I think it's 24 now. Um, and we have names for each technique and examples of each and many evaluated uh, case studies which try to, you know, which where these techniques have been applied. So um, that's been quite an important uh, aspect of the, the work I've been doing uh, with others, of course. Um, but I, I'm not quite sure how this will ever end because or every even with these twelve techniques, I keep running up against examples of crime reduction, which are basically opportunity reduction uh, measures, don't really fit the classification, and that's been the reason that the classification, or one of the reasons that the classification has expanded. Uh, a lot of what happens is you you. You develop a new set of techniques or expand the ones you've been working on, then you find there's still not enough. Um, and I keep finding that now, and other people do. So people might write to me and explain a, 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 a crime reduction approach they uh, followed, which is clearly opportunity reducing, but it doesn't really fit any of the 12 techniques terribly well. Um, and so gradually the techniques have expanded and I think they will further expand, but I'm not really quite sure how they will or, or uh, who will expand them. Um, 24 is quite a lot to take in in any case, um, but the reason that uh, I and others have pursued this classification is it, it serves as a useful guide to people who are trying to deal with a specific problem. It gives them 24 techniques that they can think about applying. Um, the trouble is that, uh, as I say, I, I think that isn't those number that number isn't quite sufficient. We have to change it again. But frankly, I haven't got the uh, energy or the or the taste for for doing that. I hope someone else will take it off. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of Crime Science. Please check back in two weeks for the second part of this episode with Dr. Ronald Clark to learn more about situational crime prevention, wildlife crime, and much more.